Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners. Just before we start the show, want to let you know that I'm doing some preliminary research on people with physical disabilities and sex toys. I'm only looking at physical disabilities right now, but I would love, love, love your feedback. So what you can do is head on over to www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash sex toy disability, all one word, and fill out the little survey that I've created there. It'll take no more than like two to three minutes tops. We want to get some hard data. Yeah, we do. Hard data. And I'd love to get it from you, my awesome listeners, who listen to the show and can really help me create a great podcast about this stuff, getting the real data from you. So if you could fill out the survey, I'd really, really appreciate it. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by the worker owners of Come As You Are. Come As You Are has the peculiar distinction of being the world's only worker-owned cooperative sex shop. With feminist and anti-capitalist values, Come As You Are only carries sexuality products that they truly believe in at the lowest price possible. Get free shipping at www.comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners. Just wanted to let you know that I have started recording minisodes for the show. And if you're like, hey, Andrew, what's a minisode? Let me tell you. A minisode is a little tiny morsel of awesomeness of Disability After Dark where you, the listener, get to write in anything about disability you want to tell me about, a story, a letter, a thought, uh, a topic idea. Just tell me about your life as a disabled person. Um... Or if you're non-disabled and you have questions about disability you want me to answer, write in and let me know. And then we can really build a community around disability and we'll put them in a little 10-minute minisode that we'll play before the full episodes. It'll come out, they'll come out every Wednesday. So if you want to write a minisode, write me your thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas about disability. You can write them to our new email address for the podcast. You can write them to disabilityafterdark at gmail.com and then I will read them back to you. That's the, I'll read them back to you and we'll wildly speculate about them together. So submit your things for a minisode to disabilityafterdark at gmail.com Cripple Content Creations presents Disability After Dark the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability with your host Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza Shining a bright light on sex and disability Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners. Thanks so much for coming to this brand new episode of Disability After Dark. I am your disabled boyfriend experience, your disabled dreamboat. I am so happy you're here and I'm really excited for this episode because it's a really cool fucking interview with a new disabled friend of mine that I'm happy to share. I got to speak with spoken word artist Nathan Say for this episode. We talked a few months ago about doing an episode and then disability got in the way and we had to reschedule like nine times because disability on my end got in the way and then on his end got in the way and things we rescheduled a bunch but finally we sat down together and we had a different concept for this episode which we scrapped when we started recording today for and we scrapped it in favor for just having a conversation so this conversation is really intersectional It's about sexuality, disability, polyamory, attendant care, spoken word, poverty, uh, so many different things we talk about in this episode. And it's just, I I felt it was really important just to not have a topic for this one, just to to have a conversation about all the things. And, And we talk about nudist colonies, we talk about kink play, we talk about 
many, many different things. And it was just really cool. We talk about sex education for intellectual disabilities. So many different things happen in this, in this episode. Um, I will warn you, though, that the audio, the gain was too high. So at points, I sound a bit muffly. So sorry about that. But I'm a one-man production here right now. So I tried my hardest. I did my best, but that's what we got. So I hope you can hear me, and I hope it's okay, and I hope you enjoy it. But here's my full interview with spoken word artist Nathan Say right here on Disability After Dark. Nathan Say, thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you, Andrew. I'm so thrilled to be here. How are you doing today? I'm amazing. I'm so much better now that I'm talking to you. Um, so I know a little bit about you. When I gave the audience some background as to who you are, you had to wear a lot of different hats in this crazy mixed-up world of ours. Uh, I, I don't know where that came from. That weird little little thing that I just said there—that's weird. But uh, <laughs> you wear a lot of, <laughs> you wear a lot of different hats in our in our world. Um, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us who you are? And your preferred pronouns and disability identifiers, please. Sure. I'm just a crippled kid trying to make it in the world, Andrew. I um, mean, aren't we all? Isn't me too? We, me too. Me too. Exactly. So, hello, everyone. My name is Nathan Say. Um, I'm based out of uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, since 2009, I've been a spoken word artist. Um, I've also... Um, I also am a freelance uh, sex educator working within the, the intellectual and developmental disability community. Um, and then I'm also a student getting my master's degree. I'm in clinical mental health counseling. And with that, I want to uh, open up a private practice that, that's focused around um, sexual concerns um, of varying degrees. So anyone that, that presents with a sexual concern is welcome into my practice. Awesome. Um... That's a lot of things. Oh, and I'm sorry. Sorry. I, and then I always forget the second parts of questions. Um, and then my disability identifiers are uh, a cerebral palsy, um, anxiety, depression. Um, and then I'm also on the, somewhere on the neurodivergent scale, but I haven't been formally tested. So it's quite possible I'm on the autism spectrum somewhere. Um, and then my pronouns I do identify um, as genderqueer. Um, and so my preferred pronouns are he, him, and they, them. Um, and then I, I do use them interchangeably. Nice. Uh, I'm curious, just as we're, we're talking about that, as somebody who uses they, them, and um, like w as a disabled person, what is that? Does, does your disability play into the reason to use that term? Um, yeah, you know, it was funny. I first discovered gender queerness or the term genderqueer in college, um, I was taking a gender studies class, um, and it just seemed to me that um, the gen our genderedness was was centered around gender norms and being with be, having a disability and not being able to conform to any of the gender norms. Um, I've always just kind of felt disembodied from my gender. Um, I would like to do. I, it would be my goal at some point to do some transition work. I've always felt a little bit more feminine, so I'm not. I haven't explored whether or not I want to do like, if I want to do like hormones or what I, what I want to do exactly. But but you know, the goal would be a little bit down the the line to do some transitioning. Well, that that was an unexpected answer to that question, but thank you so much for yeah. sh for sharing. And that's that's I I did not expect that, but I think it's great. I think it's awesome. Um, well, we're full, we're full of all sorts of surprises, aren't we? It's so true. But I think, you know, I think that's really cool that you have taken the time to think about. Because I, at one point, was trying out they for myself, and it didn't fit for me. But I, re and I remember having, a, having discussions with people on Facebook and saying, like, you know, I'm using they because disability makes me feel much like you said. Not so much disembodied from my from my gender, but but that I didn't fit quite with the ideas or the ideologies around what masculinity was supposed to be, and I didn't feel like I fit within, especially the queer sense of what masculine was. So they felt, for a brief period, felt kind of comfortable for me. Is that kind of where 
you fit within it? Um, I think so. I think where it really played a role for me, and I think this is a really common experience, especially for new, you know, queers that are coming into the community, especially if if you're um, if the only way. So for years, the only way that I was involved in the gay community was like through hookup culture, um, and there was a lot of you know hookups where. I really felt like for a long time, I really forgot that I, I literally had a body. Like I literally just felt like, cause I love giving oral sex and love giving head. And there was me uh, too, you know, a lot, just, there was a, what's that? Me too. Me too. Just so just, yeah. like giving heads, my favorite thing to do. What up? Absolutely. So, um, but I think for a long time, um, I forgot that I was my body and I really felt like I was just this mouth. Um, you know, I really thought that that was like my role and I, you know, I didn't have, I didn't really have any good gay mentors coming in and I was older. I was 23, 24 when I came into the gay community. And so I really forgot that I was like a person and I thought that like my new identity, especially because at that time, um, my identity was also tied into like Christianity and being Christian and very God fearing. I really forgot about my whole purpose. And so I thought this new purpose was just to be this mouth. That went around and sucked dick. Hey, there's nothing I, there's nothing wrong with that. And I mean you're we're at the perfect level for that too. So I mean I mean Exactly. Exactly. Exactly, my friend. And I mean I'm sh- I'm sure Vegas dick is a is a whole different kind of dick than than like Midwestern or like, you know, like city dick. Vegas dick is a special kind of dick, I'm sure. I don't know. I mean, as someone who's been now, I was thinking about this. I, uh, I've been involved. I lost my virginity when I was 14 and I'm 30, no 13. So I'm 34 now. So I've been, I've been sucking dick for about 21 years. I don't know. I think, I think Dick's dick at this point. <laughs> it's true. I'm just saying like, like there's some, cause I'm not from where you're, I'm not from Vegas. So like I, I've I've never lived in a big big city like that, so like, so like the idea of going to Vegas and sucking dick sounds all flashy to me. I'm sure it's not, but it sounds all like flashy and cool and sexy and like flashy and glamour. Nope, it's it's just like it's probably worse than what <laughs> it's probably way worse than what you would imagine. Actually, it's not that there's definitely there's definitely some moments of glitz and glam, and you can definitely I tell people. Everyone needs to come out and experience Vegas at least once, and and whatever whatever experience they're wanting to get, you can definitely create it for yourself. So if you're wanting, if you're wanting the glitz and glam, you can definitely get that. That was never like my, I never wanted that experience. I kind of moved out here by accident. I didn't mean to. I just kind of showed up, and and stayed. Um, and so where did, I was. Never, where did you Where do you hail from originally? So from Hawaii, I moved, excuse me, as I belched into the, the phone, I apologize. So um, I went from Hawaii uh, to San Diego, and I lived in San Diego for about a year and a half. Um, and that's when I started doing spoken word. And then I, uh, I put out an album, and I toured my spoken word album. Um, my spoken, my fir- it's my first album, and that's available online. If anyone is interested in that, they can go. Look at you, shameless plugs. Look at you, shameless I plugs. I know. All they over the fucking place. My, they can go listen to my first album at soundcloud.com slash Nathan um, and I, and I'll make sure that's in the, um, I, cause I, I listened to your, I listened to your spoken word today. I did, I did some research on you today before our talk. And I, 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 uh, I gotta say the spoken word is really cool because there's a lot of disability intersections in there um, that are really, that we don't hear in spoken word poetry a lot of the time. Yeah, I'm definitely one of the few, ever since I've done spoken word, I've, I've definitely been aware that I'm only one of the few ones that, that do it, that specifically focus on disability issues. And traveling the national circuit, I haven't done much in Canada. I haven't done anything in Canada, actually. Well, but, hey, but, you should come to, to. I mean, we don't. I don't know about our spoken word population here, but we, uh, as a queer cripple in Toronto, we could use you. Yeah, absolutely. And you have you got just so you're aware, in case you're interested, you have a very nice queer slam. Um, so I can definitely point you in in that direction if you ever want to go to the to the. Um, it's called 
hot damn it's the queer slam and they do it all they actually do it in all provinces so they have i know they have a couple shows a year in in ontario in toronto and then they also go the uh the creator charlie uh they're based in toronto and then they travel around the provinces every year doing the doing the show yeah so they're called provinces I think you might, get it right? I think you might know a friend of mine that that is in Toronto who supports this show or know of them. D- Duncan Armstrong? Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, absolutely. I know Duncan. So yeah, I know Duncan's a huge part of this show and, and like reviews my podcast like every couple of weeks and it's super he's super great. And I think it's really oh, awesome. I think it's written you know, Liv Mamone um I think turned you on to this podcast totally, which is which is so great. Um, yes, Liv. I love Liv. Then Liv has to come on this podcast. We talked for my last podcast, and then I haven't talked to her since, and I would love to reconnect with her. But anyway, back to you, because you're the star right now. Um, um, you mentioned... Oh, so we were talking about how I got out to Vegas. So yeah, that's right. Let me right. finish that quickly. So, yeah, no, um, finish that story. I was at, I was touring my album, um, and I came out to Vegas to do a couple shows, um, and I was just checking out the rent situation out here, and I realized that the rent was much cheaper out in Vegas than it was at the time. It was much cheaper in Vegas than it was in San Diego. When I was living in San Diego, I was basically using my entire disability check to pay for my rent, which uh, gave me a room and a house. Um, and then I was basically borrowing money for food from my parents and from what little food stamps we can get because in, in America, I'm not sure if you know this, but if you're on SSDI, you don't qualify for food stamp supplements. So if I were to if I were to if I were to go to the food stamp office to get food stamps for assistance, I'd get eighteen dollars a month just based on my social security check. Oh wow, that that's that's yeah. that's oh, that's like trash. Due to the immense joys of audio and self-production, the audio died right here, so we had to start all over again, and we decided to start at our third line of questioning. So that's what you'll hear right now. We talk more about more cool things, and Nathan goes on with the interview like a champ because my audio sucks. So here you go. So, Nathan, you told me in your pre-questionnaire, you told me something that I did not expect to hear in your questionnaire. And the thing, when I asked you what it is that you want to talk about on the show, you said <laughs> you want to talk about how you ran a nudist group in Hawaii for two years. So, I have so many questions about that. The first being, what? The second being, tell me all about it. The third being, was it hot? And the fourth being, how did disability interview with all that? Sure, absolutely. Um, I so um, the way that I identify sexually is as a nudist. Um, I'm a kinkster and I'm also uh, polyamorous. Uh, but nudism is probably the most important identifier to me, and probably the one that's the most sacred. Um, and I got involved uh, in the nudist community. Well, I got involved in nudism. Um, in college, um, and I used it as a preventative uh, method to uh, care for a chronic pain that I was experiencing because of my cerebral palsy. Um, I was having some pain that they didn't know where it came from. Um, and at first, being nude was problematic because I went to a predominantly Mormon university uh, where nudism was frowned upon, uh, even in your room. Uh, but I started exploring it uh, more when I got into uh, the queer community. Um, in, in Hawaii. And so um, I found a nudist group that I was involved in and I I took it over from the person that was ran, running it. They didn't want to run it anymore. Um, and it was primarily a, it was a primarily a social nudist group. Uh, they'd get together, they'd have a buffet, and then it would become like a sex party. Um, oh, yeah. But other people that were in the group wanted to make it like a more like a more social experience. So um, I was able to take it from like we still had the sex parties occasionally, but we also started doing like nude gatherings. So we did we had dinner and in, in, we had a nude dinner uh, in a restaurant um, that was owned by one of the, the members of the queer community there. And so we were able to do that. Uh, I think we did a couple other nude activities as well. We did like nude bowling and we went did skinny dipping at the beach. Um, and 
was it sexy? Sometimes it was. It just depends. Like, we were really open and affirming. And, I mean, generally, that's something that I'm, I'm so I'm very sex positive And I'm very, like, body affirming. Um, and sometimes it was sexy uh, for myself, depending on who was there and who showed up. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, as an organizer, you want to make sure that everybody else is having a good time before you do. I mean, I'm sure that you had that experience when you had when you had your party. Yeah, um, I everybody else around me could be sexy, and I was running around going, "Hi, hi, hi, are you okay?" Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like you, you, yeah. So that 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 was partly my experience. Um, but yeah, it was definitely. So you asked how disability intersected with it. Um, and I think that was part of the reason that I took it over was so I could, uh, I could, you know, make it accessible to me because a lot of the places that we were meeting at was not accessible. And so we were able to have those conversations and it's funny, it seems like whatever community I'm in, whether it's spoken word, like I'm very active, like doing accessibility and talking about accessibility issues in the spoken word community for like the National Poetry Slam and for like nudist events and things. So it seems like wherever I go, I always end up taking on accessibility because I'm really committed to making space for myself when I was younger. And I think this is really common um, in our community as people with disabilities. I think we're taught to believe that we're burdens and we shouldn't bother people, um, you know, with, with our needs. Um, uh, so we, we are taught that and I can tell you at 34, it's still something, still something that I inherently believe like that ableism is deeply set in our bones from the, from the time we're young, and I don't ever think I don't ever think it goes away. I mean, we can work really hard to push it away, but I gotta say I don't ever think it. I don't ever think that kernel of that fear ever really goes away. Oh, absolutely, and I think like especially when we're advocating for ourselves in community, like I always feel I think we call it in spoken word we call it imposter syndrome. I totally feel like an imposter whenever I'm advocating for myself in terms of my access needs. Like, I feel like I'm not worthy. I feel like I'm asking for too much. I feel like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I've gotten a lot better. Um, but then part of the way that I've mitigated, you know, feeling like a burden is just taking on the leadership roles. Because I found in my experience that people just don't know the right questions to ask. And so rather than, you know being vulnerable and asking the right questions, they just don't, they ignore disability altogether. And so by me taking on leadership positions in the community, then I'm able to, um, you know, answer those questions for myself. And so, you know, my goal is hopefully by making it accessible to myself, um, I'm making it accessible to everyone around me as well. Awesome. Yeah, you and I sound like we're cut from literally the same cloth. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's also what I do here. Trying to make, trying to carve out a space for yourself, but also make it accessible for the rest of the world around you. And I mean, selfishly, I, I do that in the, in the queer community so I can suck dick. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, half of my persona is like hypersexual because, because I want to be like, I'm here too. Look, I can do that. Watch. Yeah, I, de I definitely had days, I had definitely had my time when I was hypersexual. It's so funny, I keep telling people, um, I mentioned earlier that I'm polyamorous, so um, the way we could, I guess we can move in that direction now. So, oh yeah, go there, go, um, go. Sure, so I, I uh, am polyamorous, and right now I, I have a, a primary partner uh, um, that I've been with for three years, um, and we decided to open our relationship just because based on our dynamics, that's what worked for us the best. Um, and I've always been, I've always been a proponent of open relationships just based on my past experiences that I've had in dating. Um, and, and so when I met this person, I knew that whatever person was that I was going to be with, I wanted to have an open relationship. I mean, we've been together for three years and it works perfectly. Um, and then I have, you know, playmates on the side, but it's funny, being polyamorous and having the option to have playmates doesn't necessarily equate to having more sex. Um, and I've talked to a lot of people that are polyamorous, and they've said, you know, once they're in a, you know, committed relationships with people, then their, their sex seems to slow down. So that's definitely been something that I've experienced, too. And, and, and I just... Oh, go ahead. And so how does, uh, how does disability play with all that? Um, 
I, you know, it's interesting. I've been experienced. So you follow me on Facebook. We follow each other on Facebook. We followed each other for a while. And I've been talking about chronic pain a lot. Um, and so the, definitely I think chronic pain plays a role in my sex life in that I'm, I always feel like I'm tired. Um, and I'm always, I always have some semblance of pain. Um, and so definitely my sex life has, has slowed down tremendously in the last, you know, three, four, five years as chronic pains become more frequent. And I think, we, like I said earlier, and um, dicks are dicks. You know what I mean? Like after a while, a dick is a dick. And, and I, I got to a point earlier, you know, in my late 20s where I'd done everything that there was to do, you know, sexually. Well, so then, well, I mean, so not, then, not to be oh, a, not to be a huge flirt, but you haven't done me yet, so. Well, exactly. Hey, there's yeah, a I mean, long distance flirtation works, and now I always have an excuse to come to Toronto. Rubber, rubber, the, that's what I'm saying. There you go. Um, but yeah, I definitely think I'm definitely at a point in my life, and I don't know if you're experiencing this, where where intimacy is more important to me than than the actual act, like having intimate experiences and and having intimate friendships. Yeah. You know, whether that includes sex or not is like way more important to me than actually having the opportunity to quote unquote do you. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, look, I I love getting done and doing just as much as the next person, but I also love sitting with the person and knowing that we could have sex but instead we're just gonna not and we're just gonna sit in the we're gonna sit in the anticipation of the sex and not do yeah. the, and not do the thing but we could if we wanted to absolutely yeah most definitely so i mean that's that's hot that's hot for sure thank you um uh so in one of your spoken word poems you which you entitled Open Letter to My Future Caregivers, which I listened to today, and I like, I loved it immediately. I was like, well, this is the best thing ever. Uh, you said, you talk about uh, your relationship to your personal care attendants. Tell me a bit about those experiences. And in the poem, you talk a bit about how they're going to have to, like, be there for you, and they're going to have to, like, come when, you, when they don't want to, and they're going to have to do things they might not want to. And how does how does all of that interplay with your understanding of consent? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I was talking about. I'm sure you've heard of. I'm sure you've heard of Catalyst Con. Um, I, I have. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in. I did Catalyst Con last year, 2017. And so one of the things we talked about is having a disability. Um, so I I was basically taken care of by other people until I was 23. For the first 18 years, it was my parents. Um, and then for the first five years in college, I had a different personal care attendants that were friends of mine. Um, and so one of the things that's it, that was an interesting concept to me to explore, you know, as I began to get more into doing sex ed and teaching, you know, sex ed, is that as disabled people, we don't even know that we don't want to be touched because we're always touched when we don't want it. You know what I mean? That sometimes we don't even realize that we don't want to be touched. Yeah. At least that was my experience. And I definitely yeah. found that with people that I worked with. Um, and so I think for me, learning to take care of myself and doing the things that I needed to do uh, was was part of, part of the impetus for that was probably because I didn't want to be touched anymore. You know, at times when I didn't want to be, you know, when I didn't want to be manhandled, especially the I remember the last couple of years that I had personal care attendants, they were very manhandly of me and not very, you know, considerate. And for some, some of the people that were there, I think just depending on who your personal care attendant is and the way they lift you and the way, you know, different people's bodies are configured, you don't really have much control over that. There's not much you can do about how you're picked up. You know, sometimes if the person's bigger or earlier, you can't really say, hey, I need you to pick me up gently. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way, just depending on how, you know, people's bodies are configured. And so, uh, definitely the last couple of years, I was like, you know what, I'm tired of being, you know, manhandled like a stack of potatoes. I kind of want to learn how to do this on my own. Um, and, you know, of course, it takes a lot more time than it would if I, because I would, I, I, I would admit I'd be the first to admit that I still would, would benefit from a personal care attendant. But, I, you know, I'm not really interested in 
coordinating schedules and I'm not interested in, you know, if my attendant has to come at 10 o'clock at night, you know, I don't want to have to negotiate that with other things that I'm doing. Um, and so at not having a personal care attendant really freed me up to live the life that I wanted. Um, but also, um, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to confound myself to those types of, you know, scenarios that I was talking about where I didn't want to come home at 10 o'clock if I was out enjoying drinks with friends and I knew that was the only time that my attendant could come. Um, I would, I would in, insist upon them that, that especially the last couple of years when I was doing self-hiring, um, that they, that they really need to have open availability and instead of saying, I'll be here at 10 o'clock, if we could do, you know, sometime between 9 and 11, that would work for me. Like, I could do well with, like, negotiating, like, a time frame. But instead of, I think a lot of people, where a lot of, where we run, where we run wrong in the wrong way is that we try to be accommodating to, you know, your personal care attendant, too. And at the end of the day, it's still a job. And so you need to be able to negotiate those boundaries with what you're comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, totally. I, you know, I think that it can go either way. I mean, it is a job, but sometimes, like, I find myself getting really, to just bring it back to attendant care, sometimes with my caregivers, I find myself being really, getting really mad at them for no reason, and I think that's just a long-term effect of, like, living in quasi-institutional housing. Yeah, you don't want people in your space all the time. Um, especially me, I'm actually, I know this is going to be a shock to you, but I'm actually fairly introverted. Um, what? No way. I know. Yeah. No, I'm actually fairly introverted and that. Um, and so I'm not really interested. There's, I let, I actually let very few people into my personal space. Um, unless like, unless I fuck with you really, really heavy. Um, you know, either intimately in a friendship way or otherwise. Like, I'm not, I'm not interested in letting all these people into my space. And I think, I think part of that has to do with the attendant care that I received. Um, and so, you know, that poem was literally, that poem literally talked about, that poem literally ex talks about experiences that I had the last two years of my attendant care, where, you know, sometimes I think, especially if you have like, if you have, and I'm sure you've gotten this too, like attendants that are like religious, like when they first start, like they only want you, they only want to be your attendant if your house is clean, you know, if you say your prayers, if you have the crucifix on your wall, like that type of thing. Like it they never, want to be able It to never got that intense for me, but it did get to like, so you talk about Jesus, right? And I'm like, no, I suck dick. <laughs> Oh, I love your boundaries. You have a very implicit way of setting your boundaries. I, 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 my boundaries are, this is my house, you're in my house, deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, so maybe, like, those situations that I was talking about was maybe a little bit metaphoric, but I still think that, especially some, you know, attendants that are religious, they want to feel comfortable away, you know, if they can't look at this as, even though they're still doing it as a job, they have to feel like they're comfortable in it too. And to a certain extent, I can understand that a little bit, but mostly not. Um, like you said, like this is my house and you're going to deal with it. Um, and so the last two years, that, that was really the pushback for me. Um, and it became really difficult for me and it became really difficult for, for me to find people that were willing to accept that. And so that's really was the impetus for me learning how to take care of myself. Awesome. Um, I, I, I guess then that you're a little bit less disabled than I am because I need like full on care. So do you, I guess, don't need that. Um, I mean, I would, I would benefit. I definitely feel like I would benefit more from having, you know, attendant care probably more often than I do. I would probably benefit having a little bit more care than having somebody come in more uh, once a week. Uh, because my partner right now primarily and I right now primarily my partner and I are in a long distance relationship um, he works um, you know in a town far away from here so I see him maybe once a month for a couple of days um, and so definitely when we were when we were together and he was here more often he was able to shoulder some of that and he was glad to do that but now that he's far away I can definitely see how I would benefit from that but yeah um, I mean I have a so I have a tilt 
have a tilt and recline wheelchair, and that takes away the concerns of having pressure sores. When I was younger in college, I was getting I had three or four pressure sores, and so it became a, it became a concern um, that I, that I would need long term care for that or more intensive care for that. But definitely, the tilt and recline has given me a level of independence, right? I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, um, but like I said, it takes it takes an extreme amount of time for me to do anything. It takes at least you know if I were to do laundry on my, uh, if I were to do laundry on my own, it would take a good two days for me to do it from start to finish. Um, bathing is it takes part of a day, either most of the morning or most of the evening, for me to do it and do it well to make sure that I'm clean. So it's definitely it's definitely. Personal care, my own personal care, making sure my needs are met is definitely something that I do it, that I take a large chunk of time doing. Obviously, but I mean, there is something kind of, kind of freeing about doing it by yourself. Yeah, it is. It's uh, you know, I it, it's it's definitely a juxtaposition, and and having this conversation reminds me of all the reasons why I don't want to have a personal care attendant. But definitely, when I'm in the thick of it. And I'm like transferring because for me transferring is the most exhausting. Whether it's to the toilet or to, you know, the the shower chair to do a showering, it's definitely one of those things where it's like you know I could definitely use an attendant to come in maybe one or two days a week to help me with this. Yeah, yeah, totally. But also, you want to have the freedom to be like, oh, if I want that porn on in the background, that's what I'm gonna have on. Thanks so much. Like, yeah, absolutely. If I want to jerk off while I shower, like you have the autonomy to decide that, whereas I don't. So there's pros, yeah. there's pros and cons to like both things for sure. Um, That's true. Um, and so, tell me more about your relationship with consent and disability. Sure. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I I think that. I'm, it's, hookups are weird, right? Like, I've been thinking about this a lot, especially with, and I'd be interested to hear how you negotiate hookups, especially with needing the attendant care that you get. I think that's where, where consent becomes the most murky to me, is, you know, if I'm in, if I want to be comfortable and I want to get onto my bed, you know, what's going to happen if this person decides that he's going to rob me because I've been robbed during hookups, I've been, I had somebody try to hit me, you know, physically abuse me during hookups. And so I think that for me, that's when consent becomes the most murky. And I think also it's part of the reason why I'm a lot more careful in my hookups than I was when I was younger because of those experiences. I'm a lot more wary of, of uh, having somebody, you know, come to my home. And also I'm wary of going to other people's homes because I don't know what's going to happen when I go there. Yeah, and I would, I would say I'm the same way. When I was younger, the idea of going to a guy's house to fuck was romanticized to like no end and now I'm like ah you know what come over here but also before you get here let me like vet you really well and make sure you're not, yeah. you're not a creeper yeah let me see your picture especially it's so funny to me because I think and I'm not sure why this is but now with Grinder and all the other hookup apps like there's less people showing pictures than there well, was I mean before. what is the deal with that if I'm gonna suck your dick I wanna see your face the end yeah, exactly. I don't even care. I don't even care if 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 I if, 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 if sorry, I have the CP stutter, but I don't even care if 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 I if I if I if I see your dick at this point. I just want to see your face, and I want to make sure that you look like your picture too. So if you show up at my door and I open it and you don't look like your picture, or you're ten years older, fifteen years older, or you look like you're on drugs and you didn't tell me that before, then definitely I'm going to turn you away. Yeah, and it's not so much that I'm judging you, it's literally for my safety. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Like, I, this makes me think back of all the shady things that I did when I was in college. Like, oh, wow, I shouldn't have done that, but I definitely did. Oh, yeah, glory holes in the handicap stall. Did it, yep, did it. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Did it, for sure did it. Had sex with the, I had sex with the dude, uh, and I told the story before, but I had sex with the guy in the bathroom stall, and he left me there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've, it's so funny. Back then, back then, talking about the consent, like I said, I'm a lot more, I'm a lot more, 
you know, especially talking about my intimate relationships with people, like, I'm definitely not down to talk about that without their consent. And I think that stems from when I was younger, like, not having a filter. And I remember when I was first having sex with people, especially when I was, like, when I was out in the community, you know, alone, and I didn't have the confines of Mormon school. Anytime I would have sex, I would run and tell people afterwards that I just had sex with someone else. Like, it was so exciting to me. And, like, the notion of being discreet didn't really exist. So, like, I was living in college, and I'd go to, like, glory hole hookups, uh, or, you know, glory hole spots, and I'd see people, and I'd be like, hey, you're the guy I hooked up with last week. Like, I literally had no filter. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, people would run away, like, people would run out of the bathroom as soon as they saw me. Like, oh! It was very, it was very unromanticized, but definitely having those experiences and being rejected sexually because of that led me to, believe, to be a lot more discreet about, um, you know, relationships and the people that I bring into my life. Yeah. You know, with sexual partners and romantic partners. Totally. I mean, you mentioned something on Facebook the other day, yesterday, actually, I think you posted something on your Facebook about how you saw somebody who had rejected you online and how you felt kind of weird about it can you would you do you feel comfortable sharing that story? yeah sure no i can definitely talk about that so this is this is the problem that i have in navigating online dating is that you know in my dating profiles i put that you know i'm a, i'm poly i'm a nudist i'm a kinkster right so like if you want to reject me for any of those things totally get it like i'm and I, literally i'm totally fine like if you say hey i'm not into open relationships like i'm not interested in fucking you because i know that you're with someone or you potentially have someone because i don't even put that i'm in a relationship i just mentioned that i'm polyamorous um i can totally get down with that but it you know ableism it becomes insulting when you intentionally pick apart hey you're really cute but your disability makes me uncomfortable Again, it's instead of asking those questions that people are really uncomfortable to ask, they'll just avoid the situation altogether. And so, you know, in my mind, I have uh, this diatribe that I have where if somebody rejects me because of my disability, I'm going to talk to them about ableism and intersectionality and, you know, social justice and all those things, you know, why it's important as minorities that we fuck, right? Because... And I think it is. And I think, like, sexuality is, like, a very politicizing thing for me. See, but you know what I think about uh, when you talk about minorities? It just got me thinking. You know what I think about disabled people fucking? Is that we need to fuck more of each other. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally down. I'm totally down for that as well. Um, And even creating those experiences. And then those, and then that even, but that creates, you know, and it's funny. we We can definitely move towards talking about that. Because especially in the intellectual disability community and the developmental disability community where I teach and work at and teach, you know, consent and sex ed, you know, where do we even have room for those conversations? How can we even find each other like that? You know, if you're, if you're semi-institutionalized, how are you able to create those spaces for yourself where you can find other people with disabilities? Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely... It's definitely, you know, definitely something that I want to touch on as well. But inevitably what happens, you know, we get hurt and we're not able to have those conversations. And inevitably what happens, like, when I post about it, because I'll post about my online dating experiences a lot, if you haven't noticed. Um, I did notice. I did. Go, I did notice. I did. Yeah. So people will always go, oh, he just wasn't good enough for you. Oh, just move on. You'll find someone out there. You'll find someone for you. Like. You're so perfect, blah, 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 ta, ta, ta. And to me, like, that's not the point. Because for me, when we're not, if, you know, as social, like, because I'm very active in social justice communities, and I'll be the first to, to, you know, call out ableism or racism or homophobia, like, in those spaces. But, like, when it, and, it, you know, theoretically, it should extend to online dating. But I think what happens is when we have those conversations where it decenters the person, you know, that's being ableist, um, then it allows us to perpetuate those shitty, you know, stereotypes that, that we, you know, dislike when they happen to us. You know, the guy on Grinder that we're not attracted to that's constantly stalking us um, and we ignore him instead of just telling him, hey, I'm not interested. You know, it allows us to perpetuate those types of things if we're not willing to call out our own, our own ableism, our own otherness. You know what I mean? So I think that, that that's, for me, when I post those experiences, 
I'm not looking for, you know, I'm not looking for validation in myself, but I'm looking for people to look at themselves and be like, hey, this is a shitty thing that I could potentially do. I need to work on that and, and check myself on it. Yeah, I mean, I find it troubling when, when, when I post similar stuff and people will post back like, oh, you're the greatest, don't worry, you can find somebody, or, or, you know, you're so cute, though, and it's like, well, if you really thought that, wouldn't you be fucking me? Yeah. Like, if you really, truly thought that, wouldn't we be making out? If you really, truly thought that, wouldn't we, like, why am I, why, why do I have to go and grind looking for a dirty grinder hookup when I could be with, like, somebody who... Yeah, when I could be with people that love me and, and trust me and want to be, you know, want to be with me for me, yeah. And so, and, like, social media allows for us to say all the stuff that isn't necessarily the truth. Right. And I think when, like, to say, when, able, when our able-bodied friends see that we were hurt, their first instinct is to run to our defense because they love us and that's all nice. But really what you're saying is don't run to my defense, just let me, let me put it out there. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and like I said, it's working in, so primarily I've been working, I've been teaching sex ed the intellectual and disability and the developmental disability. Tell me more about, tell me more about that, I'm really curious, because we don't talk enough yeah, about, absolutely. we don't talk enough about intellectual disabilities in terms of, like, sexual education. We barely talk about disability in sex ed, but in terms of intellectual disabilities, there's a lot of discussions of consent right now and, and sexual abuse right now, so how, as a teacher in that, in that field, how do you navigate consent with that population? So, first of all, I have to say that 90 to 95% of the work that I do in those in that community is, is based around communication and consent negotiation. And 5% is talking about the actual acts of, you know, sex and like the actual nuts and bolts of, of having sex. And I think that's interesting. Um, and so, first of all, I want to... Um, if you're listening to, if do you have agencies that listen to your podcast, do you know? I'm like, not sure, but I can push it out to the agencies. Yeah, I can definitely. I'll definitely. I'll definitely push it out to people as well in in the communities that I work with. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. So, first of all, if you're listening to this and you're part of the developmental disability community as like a worker or an executive director, and you um, actively work to create sexual experiences for people that, that live with you or that you take care of, congratulations and thank you for doing that. Um, and like I said, secondly, most of the work that I do is with agency staff and individuals that live in the different programs that I work in, talking about consent and negotiation and talking about you know what's safe and what's not safe with your body. And that's a good conversation to have. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed is that you know when I go away, I'll, I'll maybe give, I don't work with anyone locally, I work with people far, far away from me, primarily on the East Coast, so at most I'll maybe get to them one or two times a year, and those conversations um, are not followed up on once I leave, um, so, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, just the nature of intellectual disability requires us to relearn those things, um, so we're really not, when I come, in my experience, I'm not really adding new information to what we've already talked about. We're basically going over those, they were going over that and relearning the things that I taught them the last time I was there. Um, and those are, you know, consent, having the ability to consent and knowing the difference between safe and not safe is, is an excellent skill to have. Um, and it's a skill, you know, that some people without disabilities don't have. You know, they don't have the filter for that. But, you know, how do we move beyond those conversations? is I think it's the next step. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting to me, I, I like to tell this story when I'm with groups, is that, you know, there were two people in an agency that lived in a, you know, in a residential agency together, and they wanted to date, and they had different social workers. So before that could even, like, be a conversation, like, they had to talk to the agency staff. The agency staff had to talk to the social workers. The social workers had to have a meeting with the guardians. And it's like, at what point is it ever going to be okay for us to move away from, you know, four levels of safety? And just, but, you know, adults, regardless of the fact that they have a, a labeled intellectual disability, when can we move away from, you know, letting them, you know, be... Why are they always going to be seen as somebody who's a risk? 
yeah, why are they a risk and why can't we allow them to fail? Why can't we allow them to live together and maybe the relationship doesn't work out for whatever reason? Like, why, why is that, why is that now like a negative outcome if that happens? Yeah, that happens every yeah, day yeah. And so do you experience when you talk to these communities and these people in these communities, and c because I don't, I don't live with an intellectual disability, I don't want to pretend like I know, um, yeah. but do you, do you talk to these clients and do they tell you, do they have, do they have any, like, what are their biggest concerns? I think, you know, a lot of them have basic notions of love and, and relationships and what that looks like, but if the only relationships, if the only close relationships that you've had um, with people are with caregivers and family members, then you don't really know what it's like to be in a relationship. So it's really talking about and trying to come up with words that people will understand, like what the difference is between a relationship with a potential romantic partner is and a relationship with your family member or a relationship with your caregiver and how that's different. Um, so a lot of it, and it's it's been, for me, the fun of it is being really creative and figuring out what that looks like and how to teach that in a way that that makes sense to people because especially in the, you know, working with that community, you could have five different people in a room, you know, you're teaching a class to a small group of people and you have five different people in a room and they need to be taught this concepts five different ways. Um, yeah. So it's challenging and, you know, wonderful all at the same time. I do think it's really powerful that you, we don't talk enough about disability and sex ed, period, but I do think it's really powerful yeah. that you are a disabled, polyamorous, queer person of color who is, who is, who's giving those, like, giving those presentations. That, that's, that does say a lot, and I think we need more people who are disabled giving those, being in positions of, not power, but positions of community to present that information to community. Yeah, I'm absolutely a proponent of that, um, that, that people with disabilities need to teach other people with disabilities and, and that they need to be in community with, with each other, whether that's, you know, in an online community on Facebook and, you know, we've talked about how those can be problematic um, too, or, you know, living together just in an intentional community. Completely, and I, I, I just wanted to say I, I really value that you do the work you do, and because all I knew about you was that you listened to my podcast, and then when I did my research today, I was like, wow, he's there's so many things that I want to like talk about. So I'm glad we could touch on all that. And I just think knowing that there are other people that they're doing all this stuff in the community is really, really valuable. So yeah, thank you. And I, I thought about it, and. You know, this is the first time that I'll ever be on a pod or any sort of interview talking about my love of oral sex, which I, you know, I'm completely fine about. Do you um, want to talk more about your love of oral sex? We could do that. No, not really. I, I think I've just, I think I've, I, I think we've explored that plenty. Um, but, you know, I think, too, I, I, I need to give myself more credit for the work that I do. And I think living in singularity, oftentimes we're the only people with disabilities doing the work in our communities that we're doing. And so living in, in singularity, uh, we tend to run the risk of forgetting the, um, the important work that we do and the reason that we do it. Um, and so I want to thank you for affirming the work that I'm doing because I've really been out here for a number of years doing, a work, doing the work. And because of, you know, different things, confidentiality, religious concerns, family is not something that I can talk about in a really open way in the ways that I like to. So thank you for affirming that. And giving me the space to talk about those things. Anytime. And if you, I appreciate it. If you know anybody in Vegas who needs us to do a joint workshop, I'd love to come out there and, uh, well, you know, go on the strip. And yeah, absolutely. I, like I said, I don't know. I haven't, I actually haven't done, I've been here for six years, and I haven't done, um, you know, a sex presentation out in Vegas. But we can definitely, but even, you know, even if we bring you out to do places, to do work in places that I've been before, in places that I do work on a regular basis, we can definitely facilitate that. Because I feel like there just needs to be more of us doing this work, and I think it's so valuable, and I, I, I love that you're doing it from a different lens than I am, and also from the same lens, it's, so, it's just really cool. Um, yeah. So, but I want to switch gears. And I think also, I, let me just say really quickly, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. there's, I think as a, as 
people with disabilities, we do a lot of free labor. <laughs> At least that's how it's been in my experience. Yep, yep. Um, yeah. but, I, but, I, but I think if, we're, if we want to politicize the disabled body, it's really important that we realize that the work that we do, like our own personal work that we do, is still work, and it's still valuable, and it's still important. You know what I mean? That's why everybody should pay to listen to this podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, if I don't know, do you have a Patreon? I do. We do. The I do. Yeah, we do. So yeah. So the, I mean, audience, when you hear me say one dollar, I'm politicizing my body, bitches. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. You're politicizing your body and like, come on, like not even a dollar, but like a cup of coffee. Like you can't donate a cup of coffee to the podcast. Like coffee, see, like see audience, my guest is doing, my guest like, is doing all of the work for me. I don't even have to do I yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for the shameless plug there, Nathan. Thank you so much. Um but before we're done I have one more question, one more line of questions for you. In yes. in your questionnaire you asked me about, you said you want to talk about kink dungeons, which I was curious about because I'm a kinkster. I'm, I would say that I'm kinks, kinky too, but I've never been to a kink dungeon for the same reason that you probably have not been to many of them, that they're not very accessible. Kink dungeons are not accessible, goddammit, and that makes me so angry. Right? Um, so... so <laughs> That basically answers my that question. And I remember, I think what made me want to put this in the pre-questionnaire is that at the time that we were doing it, which was two months ago, um, we, so in Vegas, Kink Dungeons just kind of pop up wherever, like we don't have a designated place space, and I don't know, um, in San Diego, there was a Kink Dungeon that was, that I never went to, but it was definitely like the community space for Kink. It doesn't seem like we have that here. In Vegas, it seems like King Dungeons will just pop up and someone will organize a play party. And this was all on Craigslist, so it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure that we're, we're migrating to that life more now. Yeah, with that Foster and Sestra happening, yeah, I'm sure that, uh, yeah. that, that Craigslist exactly. will be, yeah, that's not happening anymore. And so, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Is, did the, in Craigslist in Canada, did they take down the online personals as well? They didn't, they're still up and running. That's amazing! I hope you take advantage of that. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, if people weren't such ableist douchebags, I would. But because of ableism, I probably won't. Yeah, absolutely. I totally understand that. So, so in, at the point of my pre-questionnaire, just getting back to that, keeping keeping on our line of questioning and not going in tangents. But, but um, tangents are so I'm fun, though. Tangents are so fun. I know they are. Um... But also, my voice is getting tired. I've been, at this point, we've been <clears throat> we've been talking for a while. But um, I had I had done I had negotiated a dungeon, and we talked about accessibility, and we talked about what that would look like. And I thought about it for a really long time. Um, the organizers, who were just well-meaning people, they weren't like necessarily in a position of authority within the larger king community. They had toys. They wanted to put them to good use. Like they had a dungeon set up in their home. And they wanted to put that to good use. And so we talked a lot about what that looked like, you know, what the scenes would look like, what accessibility needed to look like for me to be there and participate. Um, and they assured me that it would be fine. Everything from, like, the width of a bathroom door for me to be able to go into the bathroom. And the fact that there needed to be, like, no ledges to go into the entrance of, of different places, you know, for me to, for it to be accessible for my wheelchair. We talked about all those things. And when I got there... Um, you know, despite all the conversations that we had and assurances, it still wasn't accessible and I wasn't able to participate in the way that I wanted to. Um, I became a voyeur. Um, and while voyeurism is fine, and sometimes, you know, I'll go to things to, to be the voyeur, like I don't have a problem doing that role. Like, I can I can be a voyeur just as well by watching a porn, you know, a kink porn, as opposed to, like, watching it, like, in real time. If I can't participate, especially with the anticipation of being into participating, you know, I don't get anything from it if I'm just watching. Right. Uh, totally, totally. And so, like, it sucks that you had to navigate, you, you thought you navigated accessibility and then you got there and you didn't. I hate it when that happens because it happens yeah. so often and far too much. But I'm curious, though, if, if everything was quote-unquote equal and accessible to you, what would be, what is your kink? Um, I like, I like, 
being tight, like, I'm like a rope guy, and I like implement, so I like getting tickled, and I like feather play, and I like, you know, light bondage, like, I'm not into anything too intense, but I definitely like being restrained. Um, I, don't think so my CP, I don't think my CP spastic body can handle being tickled too much, I think my CP body would lose his mind and couldn't handle it. But the idea of yeah, and like I said, my CP body can't handle constraint. You know, can't handle constraint that well. But if it's negotiated well enough, I can tolerate it to a certain extent where it's enjoyable. And you know, that's what I you know I like to put my body in those extreme positions. Um, and so ideally, if it was accessible, like we, I ne I negotiated. I thought that there would be a person there that would help lift me in and out of my chair. That would help get me in position. Then um, that not necessarily was the scene partner. But it was like an extra person, like literally like an attendant that was there going. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Do, uh, I'm curious though, in king scenes, given disability, do you feel more dominant or submissive? I definitely call myself a switch. I'm definitely a switch. Me too though, hey! I definitely had experiences where I've, I've been dominant. Um, and I think, you know, I've definitely been in uh, situations where I where I'll allow myself to be fetishized or, you know, devoted if you, like, I'm, I uh, definitely have some devotees out there that are very interested in, in you know, that sort of play. Um, but then there's definitely times where I just want other people to do all the work. Yep, um, yep, that's my jam. Yeah. That's my number one right there. Do you do all the work and I'll just hang out? Um, yeah, yeah, totally. So look, this conversation was amazing. You're amazing. It was really awesome to talk to you. You're amazing. No, no, come now, stop. No, it's no. I know. Is this is this where we stroke each other's egos for the next fifteen minutes? It's pretty much. But um, okay. Uh, All right. How? <laughs> so, so is there anything else you want to say? And B, if yes, then here's your chance. And B, where can people get a hold of you? I love to talk to people. Uh, so soundcloud.com slash Nathan Say is my spoken word album. Um, and I'm accessible on Facebook. Um, and I keep my Facebook pretty private. So if you do want to add me, uh, please just send a note letting me know where you heard from me. Otherwise, I don't add you, especially if we don't have any mutual friends. Um, I don't add people. But I'm definitely willing to add people from this community because I like to hear, you know, I'd like to know who's listening, and I'm sure you'd like to know. I would like to know. I would like to know. And I think, but I think you had a lot of really important things to say here, so I'm sure people will be listening to this and, and adding you and friending you and wanting to know more about you because you're pretty awesome. Um, uh, Nathan, it was so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time and for, for doing it twice because the audio fucked up again. Yay, Skype. I got to find a better way to do this. Uh, but No worries. It's been my pleasure. But it was such a pleasure. You're an important voice in our community, and thank you so much. You're welcome. You have a good You have a good rest of your evening, and have at this point you're getting ready to go to Australia, so you have a blast in Australia. I will, and, and when the listeners are listening to this, I'll probably be, by the time this drops, I'll be home from Australia, but I will have had the best time. So... Um, but again, this is all about you. You're an, uh, an awesome guest, and I will have you back anytime. Thank you. I look forward to it. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. All right, so that's the show. I loved having Nathan on as a guest. I love all the things he said about his experiences, and I would love to just do more episodes where there's no topic and it's just a free-form conversation between two people with disabilities talking about sexuality and talking about their experiences and that was really what this episode was and I was really glad that we could do it and share that with each other and I'm glad that we could all share it with you. So I hope you enjoyed and we'll talk to you next time right here on Disability After Dark. Alright, so that's another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. I'm, of course, your host, Andrew Gerza. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of this. If you want to follow my work, you can head on over to www.andrewgerza.com or follow me on Twitter at Andrew Gerza. You can also follow the Disability After Dark podcast on Twitter by following DisAftDarkPod. You can also follow our Facebook page, facebook.com slash disabilityafterdark.
It would also be super awesome if you could leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts so more people can hear about the show. And if you are able and want to support the show, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash cripple content. This way we can do, do things like get better equipment, you help me make a living doing this thing, you help support content made but made by and for people with disabilities, so I can't thank you enough. And you can pledge whatever you can and as little as $1 a month to make it as financially accessible as possible. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again next time, right here on Disability After Dark. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations with music by Chris Ujiuchi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright, Crippled Content Creations, 2018.